Hello again, everyone. I'm Joan Obra. And I'm Ralph Gaston. And you're listening to Catch Me Up to Speed, the podcast that helps you deconstruct the news like a journalist and gives the historical context that's missing from the daily grind. So we've now reached the final episode in our three-part series about Asians in America. You may recall that the first of this trilogy was an interview with Dr. Tu Quach, who's a leader in the One Nation AAPI movement, and that started as a fight against the Trump administration's enhanced public charge rule, which is a policy that's harmful to low-income immigrants that was later rescinded by now-President Biden. Tu also is a founding board member of Pivot, the progressive Vietnamese American organization. Pivot launched a website and videos called Viet Fact Check to fight disinformation in the Vietnamese American community. And the second episode of the trilogy focused on analyzing the tsunami of media coverage concerning Asian Americans this year and showing examples of how you can shape the news coverage in your area and get involved in writing the first drafts of your own history. We want to conclude by discussing the history of Asians in America, especially since May is AAPI Heritage Month, you know, Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. When doing research for this episode, I was struck by how much the United States has changed since my birth in the mid-1970s. My parents were part of that initial wave of Asian immigrants allowed to come to America after the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act. That was the law that ended this country's preference for Northern and Western Europeans and allowed people from all over the world to become Americans. And now, according to the Pew Research Center, Asian Americans are 23 million strong. We trace our collective heritage to more than 20 countries in the East and Southeast Asia and the Indian subcontinent. While Asians are the fastest growing racial or ethnic group in the United States because of immigration, we're not the only ones increasing our numbers in America. The Pew Research Center also points out that the overall number of immigrants to America has more than quadrupled since the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act. And the U.S. foreign-born population reached a record 44.8 million people in 2018, with just about every country in the world represented among U.S. immigrants. And that means we're at a crossroads in the United States. Will we become a truly multicultural country in ways we have yet to be, or will we try to return to the past? The current wave of violence against Asian Americans makes this question all the more urgent. We face pressures to stay quiet, but remaining invisible hurts us. Because our history is not taught much in schools, and the majority of us come from immigrant families, we are seen as perpetual foreigners in this country. That is to say, we are seen as perpetual foreigners in our own country. Well, I think you guys know by now that Ralph and I don't settle for the status quo. Taking action for the world we want is why we do this podcast, right? And so this episode dispels the notion that Asian Americans are foreign. After all, the first major migration of Asian laborers to the United States was only about 75 years after the Declaration of Independence. And since then, Asian Americans have built railroads, tended the farms that fed the nation, launched and grew businesses, provided much-needed science expertise, excelled as athletes and artists. Guys, the list goes on. Most notably, Asian Americans have influenced U.S. laws and policies that continue to affect everyone here today. So we're going to take a deeper look at why and how Asian Americans are integral to this country's history. 
Now, of course, a big part of that history is Asian Americans working with other communities to fight for civil rights. And in doing so, they faced forces that tried to divide them. We'll finish this episode with a deeper look into a specific example, how past infrastructure policies have broken up communities of color and how we all have an opportunity to change this pattern together going forward. So before we take a deep dive into this history, we want to share some resources with you because you guys know a single podcast can't cover it all. And you also know that we're all about giving you resources, right? The first one is PBS. PBS did an excellent five-part documentary on this very subject that debuted in May of 2020, and it's available to stream freely now on their website, which we will link to in our show notes. And guys, I can't say how grateful I am for this PBS doc. There were so many times while Ralph and I were sitting on the couch watching it together when I said, I would just turn to Ralph and say, why am I just learning this now, right? Yeah, even as someone who really loves history and the context that it brings to the present day, which is, of course, what we're trying to do with this podcast, there was so much information there that I just didn't know. And it makes a huge difference in changing perspectives. You know, another resource that we're going to link to in the show notes was made by Change Lab. They created a site titled a different Asian American timeline, which lays out these historical events in a chronological timeline. And you can find this at aatimeline.com. And the last one is an Instagram account called 17.21 Women, created by archivist Doris Holkane. She has spent decades collecting artifacts and sifting through microfiche, piecing together the stories of extraordinary Asian Pacific Islander women. And you guys, it is some seriously fascinating stuff. She shows us how Asian women influenced political change, cultural change, and historical change here in the United States. And many of these women's names were lost to history, but they're actually proving relevant today. So please be sure to check that one out. Now back to the first point that we want to discuss. What has driven Asian immigration to America? It's important to remember that, generally speaking, people don't leave their native countries en masse without bigger reasons, usually war, famine, and unrest at home. In some cases, these circumstances arose independently of the United States. But in others, America's trade strategies and wars played a hand in creating these conditions. In the 19th century and the first third of the 20th century, a pattern emerged. The United States needed Asian laborers to help build the West. U.S. businesses recruited workers from different Asian countries, but eventually migrants from each individual nation were cut off due to rising racial tensions with white citizens. These laborers had little recourse since the Naturalization Act of 1790 limited the rights of naturalized U.S. citizenship to free white persons. Chinese laborers were the first to be admitted and then rejected. The Qing dynasty was losing power in the 1850s in the midst of economic issues brought on both by internal policies and the effects of the opium wars that were going on with Britain. And some in China decided to leave their homeland and work in the mines and boom towns created during the American gold rush. This recruitment continued with construction of the Central Pacific Railroad, which was completed in 1869. And Chinese laborers were also brought to the South to work on plantations, replacing some of the newly freed African Americans 
who had either left the South after the Civil War or were seeking economic and political growth separate from the cotton plantations. The growing number of Chinese workers in the United States coincided with the Long Depression, which was a severe economic slowdown that started in the 1870s. American citizens didn't just see these laborers as an economic threat, but they also believed that these migrants would spread disease. Sounds familiar, right? Given the anti-Asian shunning and violence due to the COVID-19 pandemic? Sadly, sadly all too familiar. So this sentiment in the 1870s led to one of the earliest anti-immigration laws, the Page Act in 1875, which gets its name from the chief author, Congressman Horace Page of California. Page wrote the act in the hopes it would greatly restrict Chinese immigration to his state for many reasons which we talked about just a minute or so ago. And some Golden State Republicans even resisted their own party's 15th Amendment proposal because they thought it would be a pathway to allowing Chinese immigrants to get voting rights. The act mostly targeted the import of unfree laborers and women brought for what they called immoral purposes, but was especially enforced against Chinese women. And then in 1882, the first of a series of Chinese exclusion acts was passed. These laws banned immigration of most Chinese people into the United States, and this policy was renewed into the 20th century. After the first Chinese Exclusion Act, the United States still needed laborers, right? So in the late 1800s, this concept of manifest destiny had reached its limits on the continental United States. So the country continued its empire building into the Pacific Ocean. This began in 1893 when the Hawaiian monarchy was overthrown by a group of businessmen and sugar planters who forced Queen Liliokalani to abdicate her throne. The coup led to the dissolution of the Kingdom of Hawaii two years later and its annexation as a U.S. territory in 1898. Now, before this annexation, Japanese migrants already were flocking to Hawaii in search of better economic opportunities. The Russo-Japanese War in 1904 and 1905 pushed additional folks to leave their homeland in search of jobs. Simultaneously, Korean laborers were arriving in Hawaii due to political instability and famine in their homeland. Filipinos soon followed, and all these groups were recruited for jobs on the U.S. mainland. They joined migrants from India, especially those of the Sikh faith, who had started coming to the United States in the 1800s due to conflict with the British and famine back home. And then came the Immigration Act of 1917, which banned immigration from what they called the Asiatic Barred Zone. In 1924, the Johnson-Reed Act was passed. This is the one that established a quota system based on what was called national origins. The bill was intended to allow only Northern Europeans into the country. They wanted to block Southern and Eastern Europeans, as well as all Asians and also Latinos. But American companies still wanted cheap labor from Asia, so they leaned heavily on the Philippines, which was exempt from the restrictive immigration laws because it was a colony of the United States. Remember when we said earlier that some of America's wars prompted mass migrations from Asian countries? The Philippine-American War of 1899 is a prime example. It solidified U.S. imperialist history, and it had an impact that went far beyond taking control of the Philippines. 
we're going to do a separate episode that does justice to this period in history. For now, know that this colonization paved the way for Filipino laborers, mostly men, to move to the West Coast. And many of these Filipinos already were in Hawaii, working as contract laborers in the sugar fields. Have you guys ever seen pictures of the signs that say, quote-unquote, positively no Filipinos allowed, and, quote-unquote, get rid of all Filipinos or we'll burn this town down? If you haven't, do a quick internet search for them. As Filipinos found jobs from California's farms to Alaska's canneries, racial resentment flared, just as it had for other Asian laborers. Filipino men did farm work for lower wages than white men. Filipino laborers also married white women, since there were few Filipino women in America. And that resentment came to a head during the Watsonville, California riots in January 1930. There, the opening of a dance hall run by Filipinos attracted hundreds of people outside, every night for a week, threatening to lynch them. Columbia University history professor May Nye describes what happened in her award-winning book, Impossible Subjects, Illegal Aliens, and the Making of Modern America. She writes, By day, gangs of local white youth stalked and assaulted Filipinos throughout the area, throwing some into the river, tearing the clothes from others, and throwing rocks and firing rifle shots at Filipinos in cars and at labor camps. On January 22nd, some 400 whites attacked the club, where they beat a number of Filipinos and then drove to a local ranch and fired upon the bunkhouse. One shot killed Fermin Tobera, a 22-year-old lettuce picker, as he lay sleeping. Now, as the Great Depression wore on, the anger and violence around a lack of jobs brought more focus on immigration. In 1934, the Tidings-McDuffie Act set a timeline for Philippine independence and reclassified Filipinos from nationals to aliens for immigration purposes. The federal government also set an annual immigration quota from the Philippines at 50 persons. The very next year, the Filipino Repatriation Act offered these immigrants free one-way passage back to the Philippines. Just like the Asians before them, Filipinos found themselves turned away from America. The racist policies against Asian Americans grew during wartime in the 1940s, when Japanese Americans, many of them American citizens by birth, were nevertheless stripped of what should have been constitutionally protected rights and placed into internment camps. From 1942 until the camps closed in 1946, over 120,000 Japanese Americans were forced into the camps and stripped of their land, physical possessions, and the freedoms guaranteed to them as full citizens. So how did the United States break this cycle? How did our country move past the history of exploiting and banning waves of Asian migrant workers, or of locking up innocent Japanese-American citizens and stripping them of constitutional rights? How did we get from there to my father's post-1965 immigrant experience, in which dad was welcomed for his education as a chemist, allowed to become a citizen and bring over his family members, who in turn became citizens, and he was allowed to own property and a business until his death in 2006? All of these milestones are ones that the laborers of the 1800s and early 1900s were denied. And how did we move from my family's experience to the anti-immigrant rhetoric and policies of the Trump administration. 
to the enhanced public charge rule, which likely would have denied my father a green card based on his lack of savings. How did we get to today, where elders who look like my mom are attacked on the U.S. mainland and friends of mine find themselves shunned for their Asian features? As I said earlier, you guys, we are at a crossroads. And given what is at stake for the future of Asian America, it's critical that we understand what allowed masses of us to move here in the first place. And these were pressures from the Cold War and the Civil Rights Movement. A good explanation that you can read is a 2016 Washington Post story called, quote unquote, The Real Reasons the U.S. Became Less Racist Toward Asian Americans. And we're going to go ahead and link to this in the show notes. That story contains an interview with historian Ellen D. Wu, author of the book called The Color of Success, Asian Americans and the Origins of the Model Minority. So after World War II, in a bid to boost their image, some Chinese leaders portrayed their community's children as respectful and compliant, and therefore emblematic of good American values. U.S. politicians seized upon the storyline. You see, during the Cold War, the U.S. was competing with the Soviet Union for allies around the world, and these tales of industrious Chinese Americans helped the U.S. cause. So did government commission photos and videos of Japanese Americans assimilating back into American society after their release from the internment camps. In this way, the so-called model minority myth was born. And to see both examples of both types of propaganda, you can watch the accompanying video with the Washington Post story. So pressured by the Cold War overseas, support for increased immigration was already brewing by 1952. That's when Congress passed the McCarran-Walter Act, which mostly reaffirmed the restrictive 1924 immigration law. It did lift the outright ban on Asian immigration, but only nominally. President Harry Truman vetoed the bill because he felt it was still very discriminatory and did not end the national origins portion. Congress overrode his veto, but presidential criticism was a small sign of the changes that were on their way. The momentum for increased immigration grew with the Civil Rights Movement. The Children's March of 1963, which saw police dogs bite African-American children and fire hoses sweep them down the streets of Birmingham, Alabama, pushed JFK to support the Civil Rights Act. After LBJ signed it into law in 1964, Vice President Hubert Humphrey said, quote unquote, we have removed all elements of second-class citizenship from our laws by the Civil Rights Act. We must, in 1965, remove all elements in our immigration law which suggest there are second-class people. The 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act was truly groundbreaking. This law eliminated the national origins quota system and replaced it with another one that prioritized family reunification and professional migration. LBJ himself didn't believe it would dramatically change the racial makeup of the United States, but as I pointed out earlier, Asian Americans are now the fastest growing ethnic or racial group because of immigration. And another example of how the tone had changed in America after the 1965 Act was seen with the Indochina Migration and Refugee Assistance Act, which was passed a decade later in 1975, soon after the fall of Saigon. This law allowed about 130,000 refugees from South Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia to enter the United States 
and receive aid for relocation and initial living expenses. Only two senators voted against this act. And when the crisis around the boat people rose a few years later, most of them settled in the U.S. and Canada without much resistance. This was a far cry from the earlier 20th century response. So why is this history important? Because more than 50 years after expanded immigration, we're seeing the possibility of a new crop of harmful policies against Asian Americans. For example, Stephen Miller, the senior policy advisor under Trump, once expressed his desire for a national origins-styled law. Now under President Biden, overly restrictive immigration laws are pretty much off the table. But there's no telling what future presidents will do. And the next time this debate happens, the Cold War won't be pushing the federal government, and consequently the public, to take a more positive view of Asian Americans. It's actually more likely that tensions between China and the United States would fuel anti-Asian rhetoric and sentiment here. We may even still be facing the anti-Asian violence that has arisen with the COVID-19 pandemic. So there is one more thing I want to point out about the model minority myth. In her interview with the Washington Post, Wu points out that Asian Americans were contrasted with African Americans after World War II. She says in the piece, quote, the work of the African American freedom movements had made white liberals and white conservatives very uncomfortable. Across the political spectrum, people looked to Asian Americans, in this case, Japanese and Chinese Americans, as an example of a solution, as a template for other minority groups to follow. Look how they ended up. They're doing just fine. And they did it all without political protests. End quote. Now, Wu adds that this wasn't really true. Asian Americans did get political. But this was an expedient narrative to portray Asian Americans as submissive, especially at a time when there were so few of us in America. Today, at 23 million strong, Asian Americans are decisively speaking up. One example is the Asian American Foundation, a new organization which has raised a whopping $250 million so far to advance Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, quote, in their pursuit of belonging and prosperity, end quote. The Asian American Foundation's introductory video features journalists, politicians, musicians, athletes, writers, business executives, and more and they stress the need for solidarity across different groups. As writer and activist Jose Antonio Vargas says, we need to create an America that belongs to all of us. Later in the video, he adds, we need to rewrite, really for the first time, the full history of this country. So it's in that spirit that we move into the last section of this episode. We're showcasing several historical examples of Asian American activism, then we'll point out another opportunity for Asian Americans to work in solidarity with other groups today. In 1965, the mostly Filipino members of the Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee, or AWOC, met in Delano's Filipino Community Hall and voted to go on strike against the town's table grape growers. This was led by AWOC leader Larry Itliong, who had formed the group in 1959 along with Philip Veracruz and Pete Velasco. Itliong was key to getting the AWOC connected with the National Farm Workers Association, led by Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, whom he convinced to join the strike. 
And then the following year, these two unions merged and became the United Farm Workers, with Chavez as director and Itliong as assistant director. The UFW went on to become the largest and most important farm worker union in the nation. And Chavez's name is very much remembered for his contributions. But sadly, Larry Itliong's name is not nearly as well known, right? And Marisa Arroy, who is an Emmy award-winning documentary filmmaker and a personal friend of Ralph's and mine, she made an acclaimed documentary about this in 2015 called The Delano Manungs. Um, and just from a personal note, that about what I have seen in terms of awareness of Larry Itliong's contributions to that movement um, increased multiple fold after Marisa came out with this film. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they had a park up in... Um, San Jose, actually. San Jose, named after Larry Itliong. Yeah. That, Delano Monongs Park. The Delano Monongs Park. And that recently happened. Mm. So um, I know Marisa said, like, you know, these films matter because it matters to a community. It matters to revive this history. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, and this is one good example of why that is, right? So we're going to link to that film in our show notes. The protests and political actions continued in the late 1960s. In 1969, a group of mostly middle-aged, middle-class Japanese, Chinese, and Filipinos formed the Asian Coalition for Equality in Seattle. They spoke out about police brutality and racism and supported African-American movements on the same subjects. And you know, there's a history of this in Seattle. In the 1930s, African Americans and Filipinos and the labor movement there got together to fight off bills that would have made interracial marriage illegal. And this led to almost a decade of coordinated civil rights work in Washington state between the black, Japanese, Filipino, and Chinese American communities. They joined together to fight for defense industry jobs during World War II and for equal access as patrons to stores, restaurants, and hotels. They also fought against racial housing covenants that kept black people, Asians, and Jews from living in many neighborhoods. They did this together and successfully into the post-war era. And we have to also mention, of course, the Third World Liberation Front. This is when black, Latino, Filipino, Asian American, and Mexican American student associations fought together for ethnic studies curriculums at San Francisco State and UC Berkeley in the late 1960s. So there are examples of all of these groups working together for a common goal. And believe me, there's more material that we're leaving out because we don't want this episode to go for over an hour. But this is so important because, again, we're showing how interconnected these fights have been and continue to be in this country's history. And understanding how they connect and how these fights that Asian Americans have fought have been part of the constant struggle for human rights and citizenship in this country is a history that has to be understood and passed forward so that in a generation, we're not once again revealing truths that have been forgotten or swept aside in the stories that we tell about America. And now we want to go on to our final example of news coverage in this three-part series we've had about Asian Americans. And particularly, this deals with news coverage between the black and Asian communities. This not only provides good historical context, but also a look ahead at some plans that are already well in motion right now and perhaps 
a way to work on some ideas that can help all of these communities. Vox did a pretty good article back in March that got into some details of the dynamic between the black and Asian communities in this country's history. It was called The History of Tensions and Solidarity Between Black and Asian Communities Explained. It's a very Vox title, of course, and we're going to have a link to that in our show notes. Now, the article speaks to the lack of history and context that has always been a key issue in this problem, particularly in the cities. A lack of common understanding of history and circumstances leads inevitably to tension. Black history in America shows that thriving communities that were built in the early 20th century were pillaged, looted, burned down, and dispersed. The examples? Well, there are plenty. Rosewood, Florida, the Greenwood area of Tulsa, Oklahoma, otherwise known as Black Wall Street, Atlanta in 1906, East St. Louis in 1917. Wilmington, North Carolina, in 1898. Then, in the 1950s and 60s, these same neighborhoods were torn apart by highways. So when the immigrants of the post-1965 wave came to America, well, they weren't always given opportunities that fit their level of education and skills. And the opportunities they did get often pushed them into the same neighborhoods that had been torn apart by violence, redlining, and infrastructure. Now, the tension that that caused between the two respective communities then began to build. And then these communities spend a lot of time working on building bridges between each other around roads that literally divide them. Yes, but there is a new opportunity to move forward here. Transportation and infrastructure is on the docket in Congress. The Biden administration discussed two big proposals in the past month— a $2 trillion proposal dubbed the American Jobs Plan in late March, and the American Families Plan, which was announced in late April. Now, if both of these plans pass, it would easily be the biggest investment into infrastructure and transportation in more than two generations. So, Ralph, you want to tell us why this is important? I do. You know, if you want to see a real present-day edifice to the destruction of Black and Latinx communities— Go out and find a highway. The 880 tore through West Oakland. The I-375 in Detroit. The I-10 in New Orleans and in Los Angeles. In New York City's neighborhood destruction is one big monument to the impact of Robert Moses in that town. From the Triborough Bridge's route through East Harlem to the Brooklyn Queens Expressway. You name a city and you'll find an area affected this way. You know, it's key to understand that the destruction of these communities by putting highways through them was done purposefully during the New Deal era. This was not any unfortunate byproduct of public works and plans. The quote-unquote underwriting manual of the Federal Housing Administration recommended that highways would be a good way to separate African Americans from white neighborhoods, and this is exactly how they were used. Not only were these areas sliced up by highways, they also suffered from lack of adequate public transportation, and that remains a huge roadblock today to upward economic mobility. Also, don't think that these kind of decisions are just part of a racist past long since disappeared. This stuff is still going on in our present day. Here's an example. In my hometown of Baltimore, there was supposed to be an expansion to the light rail system 
that was called the Red Line. It was going to connect East and West Baltimore to the city's downtown hub and its existing light rail line, which runs north and south. The project was estimated to create about 13,000 jobs and $6.5 billion of economic development stimulation in East and West Baltimore, areas of the city that really needed it. I grew up just over the Baltimore County line. I went to Woodlawn High School. It's a predominantly black area of Baltimore County on the west side, and it's where the red line would have started. These kinds of ideas for mass transit in Baltimore date back to about the 1960s, and serious plans for the red line in particular started back in 2002. The money for this was all in place after the Obama administration's first term because of the American Recovery Act, and a statewide gas tax was also put in place to help pay for it. Westside community organizers spent a lot of time convincing their neighbors this was not going to be another project like the infamous Highway to Nowhere, which is a slightly more than one mile stretch of Route 40 that was built in the 1970s that just cuts that part of West Baltimore where it is, just cuts it in half. There was even a construction, maintenance, and transit operation training program set up at a nearby high school that was going to serve both students and adults on the west side. So the plan had everything, community buy-in, local impact, educational and economic benefits, and the financing was set in place. Then, Governor Larry Hogan was elected and took office in January of 2015, and he quickly scrapped the Red Line Extension Project. The money that he did keep went to improving roads in some more affluent counties outside of the city. And there was another rail project in those plans. It was called the Purple Line. Now, this is a route that is supposed to connect Montgomery and Prince George's counties as an outer portion of the existing D.C. area metro system. And just for added perspective, there's a lot of money in Montgomery County. The Purple Line project went forward. The Red Line did not. You know, infrastructure, transportation, these are socioeconomic issues. Flint, Michigan still does not have clean water. Alabama's Black Belt has clean water issues as well. These areas and more are in dire need of repair, and they are in this bill. It's an area where disadvantaged communities can fight together for mutual benefit. Exactly, because other communities have felt this kind of displacement as well. Generations of Mexican-Americans were forcibly moved out of Chavez Ravine to make room for Dodger Stadium. Asian Americans fiercely protested the construction of the Seattle Kingdom in the early 1970s because it changed the nature of their nearby international district. And now, with the new infrastructure bills moving through Congress, many economically depressed communities can again fall prey to private land speculation, misuse of eminent domain, or removal from their property, from their homes and businesses. So how do we change this narrative this time around? Well, history is always a guide, but maybe we have to do more. If we're going to work to see that the tragedies of the past don't happen again, these communities need access to the funds that are going to be used to transform their neighborhoods. And they need to be sure to be used for their benefit and not as a vehicle for gentrification. 
There's a lot of proposals in these plans that can help these areas. Billions of dollars in promotion of electric vehicles and vehicle powering stations from coast to coast. Broadband internet for rural and underserved areas. Retrofitting to make existing homes and businesses environmentally efficient. And there's a lot more. But we have to have the same kind of intention that the group in West Baltimore, which was called the Lynnhurst Community Association, brought to their battle for the Red Line extension. Community involvement means controlling plans and writing grants for funding so the money doesn't just go to consultants and private developers. A plan that doesn't just repave a road or build a new office space, but one that really benefits the entire community. Job training and job creation. All built around the hubs that are already in place and are going to be retrofitted and improved. I'm talking local schools, local parks, local community centers. This is the kind of planning that will help to work and make sure that young entrepreneurs have a chance to run the electric vehicle powering stations that are in this plan and are supposed to be nationwide. And maybe that these young entrepreneurs can open businesses in these areas where the highways might be rerouted or possibly torn down, allowing these neighborhoods to be reconnected for the first time in several generations. These are the kind of battles we can join now. Because with the amount of money in these plans, you better believe that the consulting firms, real estate developers, and a lot of other people already have ideas about grabbing that capital and revamping the neighborhoods for their benefit. And history shows that they often don't care as much, if at all, what happens to the residents that are there right now. But those who've been in those tough situations together, they care. And they've been through good times and bad. I mean, take a look at L.A., for example. You got Koreatown, Inglewood, Watts, Culver City. They've all gone through a lot these last 30 to 40 years together, from the Rodney King riots on through today. What divides them? Well, physically, the Santa Monica Freeway does a pretty good job. So now there's a chance to become accomplices, to work together in a way to benefit communities like this that have gotten very little help in the past. It's a chance to build on what has come before us and work toward a better future together. And I hope we're all ready to take some steps in that direction. So guys, that is it for today's episode. We hope you've all enjoyed the series we've done on Asian American history. We also hope it remains a resource for you as we move forward with our focus on truth and reconciliation. And of course, there are more truths to discuss and explore, which we'll be sure to do going forward. And we do have a busy month of May planned. Right now, we're planning to drop two more episodes this month. We're already hard at work on the next one, which is going to focus on the history of the filibuster in American politics. We'll also be returning to our tips for watching the news. Remember, we want to take your questions, so drop us a line at hello at catchmeuptospeed.com. Tell us something like, hey, Ralph and Joan, can you catch me up to speed on A, B, or C? And please like and subscribe to the podcast, which you can now find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Audible, and more of your favorite platforms. And remember to give us a follow, leave a comment, leave a review. We want to hear from you, including on Clubhouse. Our Catch Me Up to Speed Club is now active, and we're planning to have discussions there about each episode soon after they've been released, starting with a discussion about this three-part series. Follow us on Twitter at CatchMeUp2Speed for the details on when that will take place. 
And as always, thanks for spending time with us today. Talk to you guys again soon.